more. This episode contains honest conversation, but some of the nature of the content might not be suitable for sensitive ears. Listener discretion advised. It's about time because we're going there. Hi, friends. Welcome back to another episode of We're Going There. I am your host, Bianca Waters Oltoff, and I hope you came ready for some honest and real talk today. The topic we are discussing today is addiction. And if I'm being 100% honest and candid with you, has ravaged my external family members, both on my maternal and paternal side. This topic was something that we really didn't discuss openly because, well, there's just so much shame around the conversation. And because of my past and my family's past, I knew I couldn't have this conversation alone. So I invited my friend, Irene Rollins, to discuss and talk about how facing your underlying pain will allow you to overcome addiction and move forward. Now, before you tune out and tune off and you think, oh, I'm not addicted to anything, well, addiction isn't just addiction to alcohol. I want us to pull this conversation out and have a conversation about, hey, are we addicted to affirmation? Are we addicted to technology? Are we addicted to food? Are we addicted to shopping? What are we addicted to? I love that when I talk to Irene, we get to have practical conversations and biblical teaching about what it means to break the cycle of addiction and shame. In fact, she wrote a book, Reframe Your Shame, that really helps people get to a path of freedom. Irene knows what it means to talk and walk through the path of freedom through shame, especially as a leader. She enjoyed a seemingly perfect life as a pastor's wife and a mom and a leader of a mega church, all while she was hiding a secret addiction to alcohol that almost destroyed everything that her and her husband Jimmy built. With vulnerability and wisdom, Irene offers strategies and biblical teaching to help people break free from the suffocating cycle of sin and shame. And here's the truth. Many people aren't aware that they're living in an addiction cycle, unaware of how unmanageable their lives have become. Their relationships might feel distant or difficult or dysfunctional, but they can't understand why. This is why this conversation is so important. Irene provides awareness and resources to help us as a listener or those struggling with addiction to recognize the warning signs of toxic shame and addiction, to accept truth and take responsibility for our own journey and our own emotional healing and growth, what it means to find freedom from shame, self-defeating hurt, hangups, or habits, and most importantly, to communicate, connect with others, and resolve both internal and external relational conflicts. I really hope you enjoy this episode and consider sharing it with a loved one who might need this wisdom and insight. I hope you enjoy the show. Irene, this is the first time that we formally get to sit down informally because it's via technology, but I am so glad that I get a chance to sit down with you, talk to you, hear your story, and for podcast listeners to know a little bit of your heart as we dive into a fun topic today. Absolutely. So honored to be with you. Love your podcast. Okay. So the timing of this is great because we were just with your other half at the Father's House Orange County, which is the church that Matt and I lead here in Orange County, California. And Jimmy brought a word. And so when we talk about like power couples, I think that we need to have another episode with both of you guys Mm -hmm. on because he brought such a great word for our church dealing with a tough topic like racism. And today we're talking about something that I think that your voice is going to cut through the noise when we talk about maybe things like addiction or shame or a word that people don't like to say, sin. I mean, here's the thing. From an outsider looking in, um, I followed your journey at a distance for a while. So if I were think mm-hmm. if I were to think of a beautiful, picturesque African-American family in ministry doing the dang thing, you guys really still to this day are leading people, loving people so well. But there was some some things going on behind the scenes. And so I gave you permission to 
be loose today and open up a can, but let's start, let's start with some of the, the highlights. So like, let's talk about your leadership. Let's talk about your family. Um, I want to give the picture of maybe kind of what other people saw from the outside before we move the curtain and really have some honest conversation. Absolutely. Absolutely. So my husband and I pastored a church. We relaunched his parents' church back in 2012. And uh, we had the white picket fence, you know, <laughs> uh, from the outside looking in, looked like we had it all together. The, th- the dogs, the cars, leading ministry. We don't, we didn't look like we look now though. I want to make that point because we look free now. <laughs> we look genuinely happy now, mm. but back then on like surfacey, I think that people thought that we were doing well mm. and we were miserable at home. We love doing what we're doing, leading people to Jesus, growing a church. I mean, that church, the church was blowing up. We had 555 salvations in the first year. Wow. It was amazing, right? So be careful what you pray for, because <laughs> along with praying for the church to explode, so did the responsibility. And mm. we did funerals. We did weddings. We coached people through divorces. Like, we did not realize how heavy the weight of ministry was going to be and how much it was going to require from us from an emotional standpoint. And we were completely emotionally unaware and emotionally unhealthy. So we had to unpack that. But during that time, my daughter was 14. I had a 13-year-old boy and 11-year-old girl at the time. And about 2015, we kind of hit rock bottom. Like My husband basically gave me an ultimatum because I had begun... To over a six-year period of time, I had reintroduced alcohol back into my life. Mm. Didn't drink all through my 20s, got saved, met my husband, popped out babies, lived on that adrenaline high for so long, for 11 years. And then we're like, yeah, we're on vacation. What's the big deal about alcohol anyway, right? We were like, oh, this whole religious thing, people are overly religious, added it back. It quickly became my medication, my temporary satiation from pain, from stress relief. And over a six-year period, I literally went down the slippery slope of addiction. I mean, I'm talking about it started out with a glass of wine with dinner to a bottle a night. Two bottles wasn't enough. Need some vodka in there. Jimmy's arguing with me, trying to get me to quit drinking. I'm like, you have, you're you're being controlling. Like, you know, there's not a big deal about this. I was rationalizing it. And so I just started hiding it in water bottles, vodka, wine in water bottles all over the house. Then I'd binge drink and forget where I had put the bottles and find them while I'm doing laundry. Crazy. So, um, yeah, but during the day I was a fun, I was functional. I, you know, obviously didn't go to church. I can't say obviously, cause some people I've been ministering at the altar. There are people who come drunk to church and (laughs) that's the place to come. Church is the place to come. Broken people. That's where we all live at church. So come. But I literally would be fine during the day, but at night I would binge drink to Mm -hmm. medicate my pain and stress relief. Every excuse you can think of of why I drank. But bottom line is six years later, I ended up in rehab because Jimmy's like, if you don't get help, because I couldn't stop on my own. All my, my brain was hijacked by addiction. So once you're in that place in an addictive state, your brain, you can't stop on your own. You need help stopping. So I needed the ultimatum from my husband to go get help. And it was the best thing that ever happened to me Mm. because my life on the other side of uh, recovery from addiction has been the best life 
I, I, I didn't even know this type of joy existed. Like, mm. cause it was the foundation of building this healthy life that I didn't need a substance place like church, overworking, going to church, doing for everybody else. I didn't need a person like Jimmy. I didn't need a thing to make me happy. I didn't need a substance to like satiate my pain. Like I was happy. Okay. And I figured out how to do that. Oh, okay. So before I want to talk about the other side, but I want to kind of hang out here because you said something and I mean, I have three pages of questions that I prepared, but I just love the direction that we're going. So, so you mentioned pain. It was like a coping mechanism for pain. Mm-hmm. I think when people think about Christians or pastors, leadership, you know, to the average person, can you articulate mm-hmm. put language around what pain were you carrying? Sure. The past, <laughs> pain from the past. So all of us come from dysfunctional families. There's not one function, like perfect family that exists, right? So my dysfunctional family system, there was pain from verbal, physical abuse, growing up, the men I would date, I was uh, promiscuous, looking for love in all the wrong places because I I made up in my head a script that my dad had abandoned me, but yet my dad was there. He just went overseas in Africa to work. But as a little girl, what I made up was that I wasn't worth him staying in the U.S. to be close to us. Mm -hmm. And so as a result, I would look for love in all the wrong places. Promiscuous, drunken binges. I like all through my teens, like that's, you didn't drink unless it was to get wasted. And like, so that early exposure from sexual abuse, trauma, moving around a lot. So we moved around. I went to 12 different schools. That was a trauma for me. What people don't realize is trauma is subjective. So it's, you could have six different kids from the same mama and daddy experience the same thing, but all of you see it through a different lens. And what I mean by subjective is for me, all that moving around, I didn't have the coping skills for all of that transition. It was a trauma for me. Mm -hmm. Being biracial, half white, half African, wasn't white enough for the white people, wasn't black enough for the black people, stuck in the middle, a trauma for me identity crisis. So pain, I had so much pain, date rape, I could go on and on. And all of that manifested in my early thirties, our brains that these amazing brains that God created, they will, once it's your brain says, it's time to deal with this. Like, it's okay. You can handle this. You'll start to get flashbacks about something. Yeah. And I began to get flashbacks about all that pain from my past that I hadn't dealt with. Then with ministry, like I said, those deaths, the betrayal, I didn't know how to deal with the grief. I didn't know how to deal with the betrayal. And all of that come, everyone experiences these things, but I didn't know how to deal with it. So that's the type of pain I was talking about. And then, you know, in my marriage, my marriage was a hot mess, but (laughs) dysfunction was all I knew. So here I am, I'm going through marriage just thinking, isn't everybody in a situation like this where you're arguing all the time or just unhappy. I thought it was my life sentence. So I was miserable and just undealt with pain from the past to summarize it. And like current pain that I was causing, I was causing through my addiction pain in my children. So now I'm dealing with shame. Add shame on that. Oh, terrible mix. 
I think this is like such a great place to put in. Like, this is not just something that you've lived through, but you really want to provide practical handles for people. You had a new book release, yeah. Reframe Your Shame. I'm so excited because mm-hmm. we always, I for books that I read, love, and believe in, I love to give away um, copies to listeners and I pay for it. I go into Amazon because you know those Amazon numbers. Girl, we got to boost them. We got to boost those Amazon numbers. And listen, I'm going to brag on you. I'm going to brag on you because this is what we discussed before the show. But number one in new releases, I mean, come on. Yes. And so, I'm so a lot of what you are talking about today is because you've worked through this and you want to provide handles for people who are dealing with that as well. So when you had said like you'd put your family through through pain, whether it's Jimmy who is begging you to go to rehab or the kids witnessing this. Were the kids aware of your addiction? They were aware that we were fighting, but they didn't know what it was. I didn't know what it was. Nobody talked about that in church. Nobody talked about addiction or alcoholism. Mm -hmm. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know it could happen to me. So it like none of us knew or were aware that I was in an addiction. They thought I was fighting with dad or okay. mad at them or just making bad choices. And then like your community, like your friends, if you were to go out on vacation or dinner, like no one saw you get lit and loaded and said anything. It was the only Jimmy. I hit it. Really? I hit it. Yep. I was hiding because I th- something inside of me knew that it was wrong, but I couldn't stop. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I was too ashamed to do it in public, but, I, but J- Jimmy would see it because I would be that way at home. I wasn't dancing on tables. I was medicating pain. So Mm. it's just, I had a different relationship with alcohol. It was like, yeah, I I wasn't dancing on tables and I didn't start drinking and driving till the end. And I thank God that I didn't hurt anybody, get a DUI, like that, it was escalating. So when did you know that you had a problem? Oh, I fought that thing tooth and nail. I was 38 days into rehab before I admitted (gasps) I had a problem. Whoa, whoa. Okay, 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 okay. Hold on. So yeah. I'm a th- synthesizer and there's all these puzzle pieces that are coming together. So so Jimmy has a conversation with you and he gives you an ultimatum and mm-hmm. he knows that you have a problem. Would he go as far as saying is that you have that you're an addict? Yeah. Okay. He was and I was just like he's shaming me and he's wrong. I denied it. Okay. And so you do find yourself in rehab. What was the, what was the point that you realized I need to go to rehab? Was it to save the marriage, protect the family, to protect your life? My friend, a friend of mine intervened and I flew to her house in Ohio and she had a conversation with me, like that uncomfortable conversation where she basically, this was her approach. It was beautiful. When hindsight, looking back, she didn't shame me. She saw the shame that was already existing mm. on me. I thought I was bad. This is unforgivable. I've ruined everything. God's grace doesn't apply to me, right? I can't be forgiven. And she's like, Irene, going to rehab, you're not, what if you looked at it as the bravest thing you could ever do? Getting help and getting healthy so you can come back and be the better mom, be the uh, better wife, be the best version of yourself. And I was like, I never looked at it as being brave. So that's that was kind of my turning point. And then she emphasized when we did research, because recovery is different for everyone. See, everyone needs to be in recovery. I believe that. It's not a bad word, and it's not just for addicts, because everyone needs to recover from a hurt, a hang-up in life, or a habit. 
right? Yep. We have unforgiveness, divorce, we've grief. Like they're all things that we need to recover from. She's like, go to, if you, if you needed to recover from an injury, you wouldn't, you would go to the hospital. Why wouldn't you go to the hospital now? So we found a treatment center that fit me, which was dealing with um, addiction through the lenses of trauma. Mm -hmm. So we went, I went into this place and they began to unpack why I drank we went back to the shame I experienced in my childhood, got healing for that. I found out the impact of shame, how it became toxic for me. Literally on my medical chart, it says toxic shame. Like I was diagnosed with that. Wow. People don't realize how powerful of an emotion it is. Believing that I am bad, believing that I am not worth anything. Um, it brings hopelessness. That creates depression and anxiety. So I drank at that to put that feeling at ease. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. And then not to mention the embarrassment and humiliation of the type of sexual abuse I experienced in my childhood. Mm-hmm. Like it, I didn't want like that. The shame of that was enough to take me out. And then I'm a pastor and a leader and a mom and I'm drinking and I'm in rehab, please. Oh no, I'm not going to call myself an alcoholic. I fought it. I did all the trauma treatment, all the dealing with codependency and how it contributed to my alcoholism, but I was not going to say I'm an alcoholic because that meant I'm bad, like really unforgivable bad. But now um, on day 38, when I was listening to everybody's stories and I'm like, oh my gosh, literally my psychiatrist was like, Irene, if it walks like a duck, quacks like a duck, it is a duck. <laughs> and I'm like, you can't tell me I'm an alcoholic. He's like, you drink and drive, you drink to blackout. You have, you literally don't remember what happened the day before. You're fighting with your husband. You're rationalizing your drinking. I'm giving you all the things people can look at themselves mm-hmm. and see if they're falling down the slippery slope of addiction. Are you hiding it? Are you relate? Are you isolating? You know, these are all signs that you're headed down a wrong road. Are you not willing to give up something? Like you're like, I know I'm going to hold on to this. Alcohol was my best friend. Nobody was going to take it away from me. And that was an indication that I had a problem mm. that I couldn't stop. So giving up something that I wanted so bad for something I wanted more, which was my family, was the way to go. And admitting I was an alcoholic was me reframing it and saying, I just can't ever drink again because I've altered my brain cells. That doesn't mean I am bad. So like the grace of God hit me. Literally, it was like a weight came off me the minute I admitted I was an alcoholic. Wow. Friends, I'm interrupting this podcast because if you know me, I love a good smelling house. Not only do I love a good smelling house, I love when things also help the environment. They're on a mission to help eliminate single-use candle vessels and give home fragrance lovers a more earth-friendly option without giving up beautiful, high-quality fragrance. The candle industry has major problems. Almost 2 billion candles are sold globally each year, and almost all of them are likely to end up in landfills for the next 1 million years. Yes, you heard me right. 1 million. Nose has created a refillable candle system that allows you to use your candle vessel again and again and again so you don't have to become part of the problem. It's so easy to use, friends. The candles are made with fragrance wax beads. All you have to do is place the wick in your reusable notes jar, fill it up with the wax beads, enjoy your fragrance for up to 36 hours, and then all you have to do is do the exact same thing 
over again. Yes, I've been loving burning the Santal and Atlas cedar scents. They're some of my favorites. It's calming and woodsy and luxurious. I'm obsessed. I love it. There's a bunch of other fragrances, and I'm sure that you will find one that fits your fancy. You can build your custom starter kit right now. Notes is giving listeners 15% off and free shipping when you buy Notes starter kit using the code going there. Yep, just use the code going there when placing your order. That's going there at notescandle.com backslash going there. Okay, so for somebody out there that's listening to mm-hmm. an amazing community, an amazing spouse, an amazing therapy treatment that was able to help you walk through this, maybe they're not at the place where they think they have a problem or maybe they don't have the resources. So how does someone begin to identify unhealthy patterns of sin and shame if they don't maybe have a husband like Jimmy or a friend like you were able to visit? Mm -hmm. How can we self-identify? And then what are the next steps from that point for those maybe wrestling with? Maybe I'm, I'm, I'm listening to you and I'm thinking about Shopping as an addiction, food as an addiction, mm-hmm. porn as an addiction. Like, oh, yeah, you, your your poison of choice was alcohol, but I don't want yeah. someone to think, oh, well, that was I- Irene, where we all have things mm-hmm. that we have to recover from, like you said. And so for somebody who is out there listening, like, how do they, how can we identify unhealthy patterns of sin and shame right now? Mm-hmm. Like you said, per, um, we all have the propensity to become addicted to something. So because of the part of the brain that it lights up and makes us feel good, then we go chasing after that. So I was in rehab with, like you said, um, the shopping addicts, they had badges. They weren't allowed to go into the bookstore. (laughs) They literally were banned from the bookstore. Yeah. And then there were the love addicts. So those are the people who don't feel self-worth unless they're in a relationship. So what are the signs of just with those two? Okay. Overeating. You're overweight. So we see the result, right? That one's easy. If you're unhealthy and you're overweight, then it, everybody sees it on the outside. So we know there's a problem there, right? But then with porn or love addiction, love addiction, it might be multiple marriages, hopping from relationship to one relationship to the next. You don't feel happy unless you're in a relationship, right? Or you you live off the high of getting married, but then when the dust settles and those hormones that tell you you're in the honeymoon phase, when those wear off after two years, you're like, hey, I'm done with this relationship or when it gets hard. And then you hop on to the next one, love addict. They were there. They were there with me. And so that's what it looks like for that one. It's so basically, and then obviously the shopping, like you're in debt, your credit cards are out of control, foreclosure, bankruptcy, like your credit like gets jacked. So the consequences are increasing. You're, something in your life is out of moderation. You're doing it out of moderation. So for example, I'm not here to tell you that drinking is bad. That's your personal decision. You have to get honest with yourself. Is what I am doing out of moderation? Is what I am doing causing me harm? Like, are the consequences of what I'm doing increasing? Am I getting a DUI? Yeah, then that's an indication. Then maybe you might need to stop drinking or lessen your drinking, right? Someone is confronting you about excessiveness of something in your life, a person, place, or thing. It could be work. People hide in their Mm, perfectionism and their work. We hide from shame. That shame, anything that separates us from God. So if I don't feel good about myself, I'm going to work, work, work 
because working makes me feel worthy of just being human. No, like you're inherently worthy. The moment God breathed life into you, like when you were created in your mother's womb, we are inherently worthy. But when we're living in shame, we don't believe that for ourselves. So getting honest with yourself and being able to recognize if I, you are using something to take you, take the edge off, take you somewhere emotionally. Jimmy, my husband, realized he was using food to cope emotionally and he ballooned up to 420 pounds. He looked in the mirror. He saw 420 pounds. He saw he couldn't fit in his entire wardrobe. He was in the hospital bed with congestive heart failure before he realized, like, I need to make a change. I was two and a half years sober at the time. He had watched me in my journey of recovery. And he still had not admitted he had a problem with food. Wow. Do you see the denial? Yeah. Like, we need people in our lives to educate us and confront us in love and be able to tell us, like, hey, look, do you need my help? You can't force somebody to get well. They got to want it for themselves. Oh, this is so good. You're giving us a perspective that is so much bigger than just a bottle of Jack Daniels or Jose Cuervo. Yeah. Like you're really giving us perspective because I'm listening to you and I'm like, oh, wow, I see myself here. I see myself here. I see myself here. And they're not far swinging mm. pendulum, but like just being prone to look at other things as coping mm. mechanisms rather than healthy ways mm. to cope with pain or trauma. So what year did you go into the treatment facility and how long were you there? It was year 2015, November 13th. Well, I got sober. My last drink was November 12th, 2015. And so I'm six years, eight months sober today. Oh, and, um, wow. Congratulations. Yeah. How long were you in the treatment facility? Oh, 40 days. 40 days. 40 days. Amazing. Mm-hmm. And your family during this yeah. time, were they aware of what was going on? And how was your how was oh your, perspe- your understanding of family or community? How did that change in, in either the 40-day period or even post? Mm-hmm. Like you're coming out and you're admitting, I have a problem. Wait a minute. So it wasn't until day 38 of your day 40 program? Yeah. <gasps> Whoa. Yeah. So yeah. really the journey began after you walked out of your treatment facility. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. Lord. Okay. <laughs> And so Jimmy flew up for family week. And so we got to hash out, he got to learn. And I want listeners to hear this as the the family member, the loved one of the person in the addiction, he had to learn about my addiction. Mm -hmm. He needed to take care of himself and get counseling for himself because what people don't realize, all the focus goes on the person with the addiction, but the people, the loved ones around the person with the addiction are typically just as unhealthy emotionally and deserve care and attention as well. So Jimmy realized in that week, oh my gosh, she's not drinking at me. She can't stop. She, this is a problem. Like she can't, I've been shaming her to get her to stop drinking. That's not helping. It's hurting her and pushing her to drink even further. And then he learned about, like we learned about what to do when I got home Mm -hmm. because I was fragile when I got home. And we fought a lot that week. It was ugly. It was like, it gets worse before it gets better. Like he cussed me out in the middle of the um, <laughs> the cafeteria in front of everybody, because I was like, they told us, don't talk about anything outside of this counseling group, except for news, weather, and the sports. And Jimmy was like, he wanted me to admit my problems so bad, so bad. Oof. And I just would not so stubborn. And that's when he lost it. 
he just needed me to admit that. So day 38, I got there on my own. I had a moment, a light bulb moment that I talk about in my book. There's a chapter called day 38. <laughs> and the, when that moment happened, it, it happened for me and everybody has a different moment. But getting home, I needed to go to intense outpatient treatment because that was 23 sessions, three hours, because I needed more to convince this brain that I would never drink again, that I'm allergic to alcohol. Okay. <laughs> wow. So then I went to trauma treatment. I went to regular counseling. I went to somatic therapy. I talk about all this type of treatment in my book because I want to expose people to there's so much out there to get well. So somatic experiences, I had to learn how to get in touch with my body. I didn't mm -hmm. know how to articulate my emotions and feel them and sense them in my body because so I kept everything in. And then the no talk rule I grew up with, please stuff and numb everything. Don't ever tell anybody what goes on in this house. And I was basically a time bomb waiting to explode because your body keeps score of trauma and we mm -hmm. got to get it out. So my community looked like I kept it close to me. Only a few people knew because remember, my friends didn't even know I was drinking the way I was drinking. I had to come home and make a whole lot of amends. Like, I apologize for hiding this from you and all of that. But then it was AA meetings, celebrate recovery meetings. I needed community to be able to heal. Confess your sins to one another that you may be healed is what the Bible says in the book of James. And but and it says, confess your sins to God for forgiveness. A lot of us walk around forgiven. We say, go to church and we're like, oh, God, forgive me of my sins. And we're like, oh, we're not separated from God anymore. We're good. So yeah, we're walking around forgiven, but we're not walking around free and healed. So the healing comes when we say it out loud and let like day 38, like to our brothers, our sisters, our community, our small group at church, in our women's ministry, like going to your conference and like that's coming up and connecting with other women, getting connected like for real. That's where true healing happened for me when I got home. I found safe places with women, honestly. It, but my A group was with women. Like I, that's the only place I felt safe enough to open up and learn from other people and grow. So two years and three months in is when I finally told my church. And let me tell you, the lid exploded off our church. People came by the droves. They were looking for authenticity. Mm. I thought people were going to flog me, throw stones at me and say, that pastor <laughs> was drinking what? But back, like, but it was the opposite. It was like, me too. I struggle with anxiety, depression, trauma. Help me because I eat at mine. I watch porn at mine. I do this. How did you get over? And then we just journeyed as a church. And then I'm like, yeah, I got to write about this because we got to help people. <laughs> oh, this you don't is have to sit so beautiful. No, no. You've been so honest. You've been so open. There's been so much restoration and reconciliation. The church opening up their doors and opening up a way for people to, and a space for people to say, hey, I wrestle with that too. But what did that look like for your mm -hmm. family? Because I know that there's someone out there that might be listening in two perspectives. Somebody who knows somebody who's wrestling with addiction or somebody that is wrestling with addiction. And the fear and the lies that we tell ourselves, the voices that we hear that if you come out and say this, you're going to be judged. If you do this, you're going to lose your job. Mm -hmm. If you're going to do this, you're going to lose your marriage. Will you walk us through as we can wrap up? Can you shed light and hope for somebody out there who might feel mm -hmm. shame and help us reframe our shame around this discussion? Yeah. So if shame tells us we're bad, shame causes us to hide, shame causes us 
to be disconnected from God and people. Do you see the attack of the enemy? Like it's Mm. so plain, like the enemy really wants us to isolate so that we can go crazy, get numb out, like become addicted to something. And then he's got us. Right. So if we reframe that and do do the, the opposite, it doesn't feel good. It's going to be extremely scary to get honest. But it will be the, from my experience, the best thing I ever did. And the reason why is because it lost its power the moment I said it out loud. So in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, the Apostle Paul actually says like, God, take this thorn of my flesh. He says it three times, take this away from me. So it was me in AA saying, God, take away this desire to drink, take away this desire to drink. And God responds to him and says, my power is perfected in your weakness. It's only when we admit our weakness Mm. that the grace of God comes in and we get that strengthening we need to walk out what we're scared about, what we're fearful about, what seems hard, where we have felt hopeless in the past. Until we admit the weakness, God's grace can't come in. We can't feel him like strengthening us. He wants us broken. He's saying, come here as you are. We're all like trying to get fixed up before we go to church so we can present some perfect gift. He said, no, come boldly before my throne room. Like come as you are. Like I died on the cross and suffered humiliation so that I could reframe it for you and show you that you don't have to die. You can be resurrected and live in freedom like he is sitting at the right hand of the father in heaven. He experienced and identified with our pain. He felt it all. And he just wants us to bring it to him and say, you know what? I'm a raggedy rag doll without Jesus. I'm like, <laughs> yeah. I'm, but, you know, I'm like bold with it now. I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm perfectly imperfect. You know, I'm flawsome. Like I'm flawed, but I <laughs> know I'm awesome anyway. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, Just becoming acquainted with your imperfections and becoming accepting of it. So I'm going to admit my weakness. I'm going to accept the consequences of it, the challenges I might look like. I had to get over and accept what people are going to think of me when they hear I'm an alcoholic. They're going to be awkward around me. They're going to be, you know, I had to walk through that. And that's the part of applying the work. As you apply the work in your recovery, over time, you your new normal becomes, I'm desensitized to caring what people think. Mm. Like, I am free. When I admit I'm an alcoholic, I am basically saying, God, I need you. It's, a, it's an act of surrender. And I feel really good about that. I love so, that. Because I, I feel more that. connected to God. This is so beautiful. You've given us such great practical handles and honesty. So I'm going to put some links to treatment facilities and places that people can get connected if they're wrestling with addiction. But I mm-hmm. want to know some of your favorites. If someone right now just feels motivated slash convicted to take a next step and really walk through, whether that's through therapy or a support group like Celebrate Recovery mm-hmm. or AA, but what are some organizations or websites or next steps that people can take if they're ready to step into a road to recovery? those that you mentioned, number number one, but my, the treatment center I went to is called The Meadows. And um, there's a location in Dallas and the one I went to is in Arizona. There's all kinds. Google is your best friend. There are all kinds of treatment centers that's, that are specific to your needs. Like some people 
might just have be struggling with anxiety or depression, find a treatment center that has good reviews and deals with whatever issue it is that you're trying to overcome. The first thing any listener should do is reach out for help. Tell somebody. Don't do it alone. You can't do it alone. So tell your pastor, tell your girlfriend, tell the prayer partner at church, tell somebody about whatever it is and get some accountability in walking it out because you're not going to be able to do it yourself. I needed my friend Jennifer sitting right next to me on the laptop researching a program that fit me. So reach out for help, do the work. Freedom is on the other side of denial that you have an issue. If you have an issue, you know it, you know it, you know it deep in your heart that, that you do. The bravest thing you could ever do is reach out for help. I love it. I'm so excited for listeners to get your book, Reframe Your Shame. If people will share online with what they're learning through your work, through your ministry, I want to give away five books to five lucky listeners who feel like they need this book and want to share with you how your words have impacted them. So uh, I'll put it in the show notes, way that they could tag you and at you and make sure that we're getting this message out there. But Irene, I just want to thank you for your bravery. Your willingness to share your past, your trauma, also your recovery and your healing is hope for those that Mm -hmm. might find themselves in a really dark place. So thank you. And also to Pastor Jimmy, just for leading so beautifully in such a crazy season. I appreciate you. Thank you for being on the show. And I can't wait to see what God does with this message, this book and your life. Appreciate you. Thank you. Well, friends, I promised an honest episode and honest is what we got. I'm so grateful for Irene. And if you want more information about her, following her on social media or a place to find her book, you can check out the show notes and click the links there. I appreciate you listening and I encourage you to subscribe to Access More or wherever you get your fine podcast. As always, I encourage people to encourage the guests who've been on the show. So you could tag at Irene Rollins on Instagram and at Bianca Oltoff. Share what you're learning, share what you're going to apply to your life and share with your friends and family the power of freedom when we break free from this cycle of addiction. Can't wait to connect next week.